me pones un, un épodos. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk, real people, real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker movement, Jules Dujay. We have another exciting show for you today. Before we get started, I want to remind you all that this platform was built because many times we were overlooked, we were labeled, we were put in boxes, but that is no longer our fight and our plight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood or heard. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. This show today is really, really special because we're dedicating the show to mothers and Mother's Day being today, my guests and myself have great moms and they both are in better places now, but we're dedicating the show to them and to all the great mothers that are out here. Today's guest, Dr. Adriana Popepscu, is a clinical psychologist with 25 years of experience in the mental health field. She specializes in treating addictions and trauma and has directed a number of treatment programs in the San Francisco Bay Area. She is the founder and CEO of Firebird Healing, a trauma healing program, and the clinical director at Avery Lane, a holistic treatment program for co-occurring disorders and trauma. Adriana has contributed to several books, including T.J. Woodward's Conscious Being Workbook, Conscious Recovery for Addiction, and Conscious Recovery for Mental Health Workbooks, and the Conscious Creation Workbook, all of which she has co-authored. Her own book, What If You're Not As Effed Up As You Think You Are, was released in 2022. She has a private practice in San Francisco and travels the world speaking, coaching, and facilitating transformational workshops. She's also a host of a fascinating podcast, which I love, called Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. Dr. Popescu, welcome. Thank you, Jules. I'm happy to be with you here today. I'm so excited about our show and the work that you have done in your lengthy career, which is so beautiful. Can you please tell us how you were drawn to this work? Just introduce yourself and give us a summary of who you are. Yeah, um, you know, it's always our own personal experiences that tend to shape our choices in life. And um, I was drawn to healing very young. My father was a doctor, so I was always around medicine and his office and the hospital. And um, I loved that he helped people feel better. And I was wanting to also work with helping people feel better. And um, and there was a lot to feel better from because my parents had their own history of trauma, intergenerational trauma, and they were also children in World War II in a country in Eastern Europe that went back and forth between the Axis and the Allied forces. And um, then they lived under communism for 16 years. So when they were finally able to escape and come to America, they came with a lot of baggage. And once I was born, you know, I think I inherited some of that and then went through my own experiences. Um, you know, being, um, having a first generation experience in a sort of Southern part of the country that wasn't super welcoming to foreigners was difficult. We felt a little bit like outsiders. I. My name was always made fun of. Um, 
And then uh, my parents' marriage fell apart. It got very ugly. Um, that was extremely traumatic for me to go through. My father passed away when I was 15. Um, so life was pretty difficult. And the thing that was hard for me was that no one was really there for me. No one, my peers didn't understand what was happening because they had not gone through experiences like that. Um, my mom, my parents tried the best they could, but they were still caught up a lot in their own drama. And so I kind of was on my own to deal with this stuff. And at that time, therapy was big taboo. You were definitely crazy if you had to go to the head shrink. So that really wasn't an option. Um, and so what would happen is as I got older and my peers did start going through some of these experiences themselves, they would always come to me. They always seemed drawn to me because I was able to offer comfort or advice or support, or I understood, they felt understood when I would talk with them. So I was lucky in that by the time I was 16, I knew I wanted to be um, a therapist of some kind. Originally it was gonna be pre-med once I realized what pre-med and organic chemistry and <laughs> all of that compounded to make me not want to pursue medical school and become a psychiatrist, especially once I realized mostly what they do these days is just prescribe medications. That wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to be able to connect with people one-on-one -on -one or in groups and be able to create change that way. So mid-course in college, I decided to uh, go for a PhD in psychology. But before I went to grad school, I needed some time off and had some friends who um, whose family had gotten a house in Vail, Colorado. And so I got to go to Vail for a season and live in this big, beautiful home for free. So who's going to say no to that when you're 21? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, what ended up happening in Colorado is I ended up staying for five years and became really, really ill. And doctors didn't know what it was. They couldn't identify. They knew I had symptoms of chronic fatigue. I was becoming slowly more allergic to everything in my environment. I was becoming chemically sensitive. All these different things were happening, and I was getting really depressed. Um, and what ended up 13 years later, they finally figured out I had Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome and a host of other, you know, co-occurring things that come with it. Hmm. And Western medicine, even when I was diagnosed, really didn't have much for me. So I started pursuing alternative therapies. I ended up going to massage school for a year in Boulder, Colorado, where I learned I have a body. Um, I was always very much in my head, very intellectual. Um, I think a lot of us New Yorkers come mm -hmm. come with some of that some of that uh, you know head tripping, um, and uh, I went to massage school and I learned about bodies and mind body spirit and the connection and and energy and that sort of just opened up my universe. So I decided when I did finally go to grad school, I came to California here and I pursued a PhD at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, which is my whole program was holistic and spiritual, and we studied different modalities like yoga and Aikido, and we did creative expression, and I did shamanic journeying, and I learned, I did a past life regression class. I mean, I learned all of these, um, just, it just broadened my perspective on healing and different cultural ways of healing, how, how throughout history, um, healing has been seen differently, and mental health has been seen differently by different cultures and traditions, and um, at the same time, I was pursuing my own health and well-being. I, I ended up on a spiritual journey. I had to uh, look at my past. I had to heal a lot of the trauma that I'd gone through and that my parents and their generations before them had gone through. Um, and I was into holistic modalities at that point. I started with chiropractic and acupuncture, and then it moved into 
neuroemotional technique and energy psychology. And we were working with homeopathy and flower essences and all of these more energy-based medicines. And I was getting better as I was doing this work. So then I started getting trained in more modalities. I started working with clients using these modalities and seeing that it was helping them too. And so it really shaped the way that I see mental illness or any kind of illness um, really as a state of dis-ease. We're not at ease. We are not um, fully connected with our essential selves, our spirit, many times when we have these issues going on. And that if we want to heal from those conditions, we have to address the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual components. And any condition will have those, whether I'm working with someone who has addiction and PTSD or someone you know who has um, you know a limitation of some sort in work or their business or career or jobs, whatever. Um, so that's kind of how I evolved in my process. It was really very much shaped by my own experiences and not finding the help I needed out there in the sort of conventional treatment world. Well, thank you so much. Such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. And we on this platform, that's our he's just or she's just moment. You know, you didn't turn back, you kept the fight and it turned out to be something that was positive. And you, you know, talked about our New York vibes together. What inspired you to write this book? Like, yes. what if you're not as effed up as you think you are? Right. That has that edge in there. <laughs> and, um, and I got a lot of flack from for that title, sometimes mm. from my fellow professionals, which was interesting. But um, that's, you know, what I've learned, what the common denominator I found and all the different people I was working with, no matter how severe their issue was, was always seeing themselves through some sort of negative lens, right? Um, we have core beliefs about ourselves and the world and how we think things are. And these are shaped by our early life experiences. When you're a child, you know, you're, you're kind of born a bit of a blank slate and then in your, and you're born whole and perfect. You know, you're a bright little bundle of love and light. Um, and then stuff happens in your life. And sometimes some of it is painful and scary and traumatic. And those experiences often will disconnect you from that part of yourself that is whole and perfect. And you'll come to believe things about yourself in the world that may not actually be true. Like, I'm not lovable. I'm a bad person. I'm unworthy. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm not enough. It's almost always some variation on I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. And we're getting messages all the time, right? Especially nowadays, we're getting messages from media, social media, magazines, movies, TV, our, our peers. Um, and the authority figures are very influential on us. Teachers, parents, families, the older kids, um, all of those, we're, you know, if you grew up in a religious tradition, you would have like a priest or pastor or something. And we're constantly getting messages, both direct and indirect, about how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act. And a lot of us learn, I'm not okay. Like, I'm not okay the way I am. I'm not okay being different if I look different or talk different, or maybe I my gender identity is different or something. You know, it's it's not okay to be different. We learn how to judge ourselves and we learn how to make ourselves wrong. And those seeds get planted in our subconscious and start to influence what we are able to create in the world and in our lives. Kind of like, you know, the software in a computer program. If you, if your software has some glitches in it, your computer is not going to work right. Um, the same thing happens for us. If we believe things like I'm not enough or I'm a failure, what are you going to attract? I mean, 
you're going to end up attracting people, places, and things that are going to mirror back to you the truth of your belief. So you will be attracted, for example, if you feel that you're unlovable, you will attract partners that are unavailable, will leave you in some way, maybe will be abusive. And then you can say, because we have this thing called confirmation bias, we're always seeking the data to support that our beliefs are true. You know, the relationship will fail and you'll say, well, look, another failed relationship. See, I really am unworthy. Everyone really does always leave me. Uh, and you're just going to keep, as, as TJ would say, who coined the term, my friend TJ, who you mentioned in the intro, he coined the term core false beliefs. And he also talks about how these core false beliefs get concretized. They become like concrete in our reality. And it's very, very difficult to break out of them, you know, because we have all this data that we've collected across our lives to, to, to prove to us that that stuff is true. Even though consciously we may be desperately seeking to prove it's not true, like I really do wanna find a partner who can be there for me. I really do want to have a healthy relationship, but if you don't believe on that subconscious level that it's possible, and you've got this core false belief that's telling you otherwise, you won't be able to have success. And this is what I see with so many of my clients, whether they're dealing with an addiction and PTSD, or their you know relationships aren't working their business isn't as successful as they'd like it to be pretty much always that the root of that limit limitation that you're experiencing is some sort of core false belief that is leading you to believe that it's not possible for you to have what it is you want but you know how do we come to these lies could you like tell us you know where do these lies come from is it something that we don't know about ourselves is it something that we create Tell us more about that. Well, I think the, the messages are, are, we're getting bombarded from the time we're in the womb, right? So think about this. You live inside your mother for nine months. You're swimming inside all of her emotions, all of her belief systems, how she feels about herself, all the stresses that she's going through. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, you're, you're first being imprinting with that kind of energy. And then you're born. And like I said, you know, you're getting messages from all around you, from your friends and family and teachers and the neighborhood kids and TV and social media and all that. You're constantly getting messages um, and you start to believe those things are true, especially if they come from authority figures. So if you have an authority figure that says something negative to you, like you're stupid or you can't sing or um, you're you're, you'll never amount to anything. If we get kind of more overt, you know, verbally abusive kinds of messages, we're going to believe those things are true because the authority figures are up on a pedestal. Of course we believe them. That's why we believe there's a fat guy, you know, in a suit that's going to come down in the chimney at Christmas and give you presents. Mm -hmm. Children believe that. And, and the little tooth fairy is going to come and give you money for when your tooth falls out. I mean, children are very... Um, believe they believe they're up until the age of seven they're actually in this highly hypnotizable state like this is dr bruce lipton who wrote the biology of belief writes about this in his book and i i quote him in my book up until the age of seven when they look at children's brain waves they find that their brain waves are primarily in theta theta is the state of deep meditation and hypnosis hmm. so essentially kids are walking around being hypnotized by whatever it is they're told whatever it is they experience and if they don't, if they're not getting those overt messages that might be negative, or they will basically come to believe the things themselves. They'll come to their own conclusions. If I'm being bullied at school, it must be my fault because I've done something wrong. Or if mom is always in the bedroom with the door locked, um, you as a kid don't understand. Maybe mom has 
depression or an addiction or her own stuff, or she's not really cut out for being a mom, whatever it is, you don't understand any of that in your simple child logic. You must think it's your fault. Mm. Um, like when I was seven, my mom sat me down and told me her, she and my dad were getting divorced. And the, I remember very clearly the first thought I had was, what did I do wrong that this mm. is happening? And it's convinced I, and I was racking my brain trying to think, what did I do? I was a pretty good kid. What did I do? Oh, maybe it was when I slid down the banister of the stairs and like fell off and fell onto a plant and broke it. I'm like, that must be why they're getting divorced. I didn't understand. I didn't understand affairs, money things, power struggles, all these adult issues. I had no idea what those things were. I figured if something bad is happening, it must be my fault because children learn if you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get punished. So if something that seems like punishment or bad is happening, it must be my fault. And that's how this stuff starts. And then again, with the confirmation bias, we then, and law of attraction, you know, if we're being this energy of like, I'm not enough, we're going to attract more of that to us. Um, all that stuff that is, is on a quantum physics level is really fascinating when you start looking at how all that works. Um, and we also then, you know, are constantly looking for the data to prove, you know, we get this tunnel vision. Like I, you'll get um, cognitive distortions. I mean, this is even stuff we talk about in traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of the gold standard of traditional psychotherapy. You know, you're always um, gonna look for the data that matches your point of view. Your point of view is what's creating your reality. And so if you believe these negative things about yourself, that's what you're gonna create and that's what you're gonna look for the evidence for. Um, and you might come to do, you know, thought distortions like, that are always rooted in these core false beliefs. For example, perfectionism, it comes from this, I'm not enough and I have to constantly be doing more to prove myself. Or um, when you have like minimizing or maximizing, like if you gave a performance and you got feedback and you got 98 positive reviews and, and two more negative reviews, you'll fixate on those negative reviews, right? Mm -hmm. And totally exclude what the positive reviews were because it's feeding into that belief of I'm a failure. I'm not enough. I didn't do a good job, whatever it is. So, so yeah. in a case where, and, and thank you for that answer in a case where you talked about the childhood piece and in your book, you talk a lot about these beliefs and how they influence our lives. Is it the same for adults and children or does that matter or is it equal to? Equal. I mean, we start in we start in childhood and we carry those programs with us into adulthood. And so oftentimes when I'm working with clients, especially in groups at the rehab where I work, um, you know, I'll say to them, do you realize that your whole program, your software program is ancient? It's like, you know, those of us old enough, like it's like a Commodore 64, you know, <laughs> or like a radio, one of those radio chat computers, right? Those big giant ones. <laughs> that people had. That's how old your software is. You are functioning, you're basing your whole life on these programs you learned as a child that are not even accurate, that are fundamentally false. They are not the essence of who and what you really are. You're a whole and perfect being. As a spiritual being, you are that. And these beliefs will block your access to that. It will create a spiritual disconnection um, and a sense of, for many people, a sense of emptiness or or void or whatever, which many of my clients will then seek to fill with drugs and alcohol and, mm. you know, other relationships, other addictive behaviors um, that really aren't, they never really do the job because you're seeking outside of yourself for something that feels broken within. 
you're not going to find what you're looking for out there. You have to heal what feels broken within. And the whole premise that you're broken in the first place isn't true. That's why I love that term core false beliefs. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us more a little bit about your book. What, what are you trying or what do you hope that that our that your readers will will get from your book? I really, it's, it's kind of what the message of the title is, right? What if, in fact, you are not as effed up as you think you are? What if that's just a belief that you picked up along the way? Um, what if you are actually whole and perfect? And what if there are tools? Because I talk a lot. The book is very much, I would say, you know, like a self-help kind of book. And it's really kind of a book and workbook combined because at the end of each chapter, you know, where I basically am looking across the book at this issue of core false beliefs through different healing lenses from the traditional psychology CBT approach to energy psychology, which is the stuff that, you know, I'm work with a lot now, things like EFT tapping or a modality I use called Be Set Free Fast, how those techniques can help us to shift the way we're seeing ourselves, right? Because when you look at, at these beliefs, it's an energy, right? Your thoughts are an energy, your emotions are an energy, physical sensations in your body are energy. And what we know from these healing modalities, including access consciousness, which is some work I've done more in the last 12 years, I look through each of these healing modality lenses at these belief systems we have and give you tools in each chapter at the end in the, in the kind of workbook part as to how you could apply one of these tools to change the way you're seeing yourself or a certain situation. Because it's all energy when it comes down to it. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of it's energy. And energy is malleable. It's always moving. It's in, it's in motion, you know, emotion. And so we, we can change these things. And I want people to have that message of hope that even though you might feel depressed and, and overwhelmed and that you've messed everything up and your life is a failure and all those things, that's just a point of view and that point of view can change. And when you change your point of view, you can change your reality and your whole life. I love that you frame success as, as part of this. You know, we're all going to be caught up in some way, shape or form, but there is success. There is a good end result to this. You know, when you, when you think about that success, What's the number one thing you think that holds us back from that? These beliefs, ourselves, you know? I mean, you can try to blame it. If you, it, you gotta watch out for going into a victim consciousness, right? This is something TJ talks a lot about in conscious recovery. And I think it's also very much part of how I work with people being empowerment oriented mm -hmm. is if you go into victim consciousness, like I am a victim of my circumstances. Like there were times when I was really, really sick, when I was out on the floor, so sick, thought I was, felt like I was going to die. There were moments when I really felt like a victim. Like, why are these things happening to me? You know, I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? Like, as if there's some sort of like punishment, again, back to that child logic, right? Um, I think recognizing what helped, has helped me and so many clients I've worked with is recognizing that when you are able to challenge a belief or a point of view, and you can start seeing it from a different perspective. And instead of functioning as a victim who has no choice and no power over anything that happens to them, what if instead you ask a different question like, well, what choices do I have available? What can I do to heal? Who could I go to that, that might be able to help me? And that was a big part of my process is I had to get a whole team of 
practitioners and healers to work with me around my healing process because I couldn't see the blind spots. I didn't know what was happening in my own psyche, in my body that needed healing and that would allow things to shift. But I kept going, like you said, right? I was I'm a warrior. I kept going. I kept fighting. And finally, you know, I got to the place where I recognized I can change the way I think. I can change the way I feel. And when I do that, things change in my body and my whole reality starts to change. And so seeing that success helped me to recognize that this is what's holding everybody back. It's not that um, you have external forces against you. You might. Lots of people do. But how many people and, and people you've interviewed on your show and your own experiences, like how many of us have triumphed over those things? You know, the tagline of my business and the symbolism of the firebird, you know, firebird healing triumph over trauma, right? Because the bird, the, the phoenix bird, right, rises from the ashes of ruin and triumphs and flies and is free. And that. that's, that's what's possible for us if we, but most people just don't realize it. They don't recognize that I have the ability to be that firebird and to heal from whatever it is I've been through in life, however horrible it's been. And believe me, some of the people I work with have been through unbelievably horrific things. Um, but the fact that we can heal from that and we can create a life of infinite possibilities, that's what I'm trying to get across to folks in all that I do, whether it's the podcast, my sessions, groups, retreats, the book, whatever it is, social media, like that's the message I'm trying to get across to people is that you can change whatever it is in your life that's not working. That's the one thing when I was researching you and finally got to meet you that I love about you the most is that all of your knowledge and experiences, all of the people that you've learned from and worked with, you are now sharing this work with, with, with everyone. And later on, we will add your information so people can connect and, and also feel like the Phoenix, you know, what, can you tell us about what do you think is limiting us? Like what is stopping us from our greatest uh, potential? The belief that we're not capable or that it's not possible. Mm. It all it is, is a point of view. I mean, look at the people, look at like when you sometimes read, you know, I like to read People Magazine. And once you get past like the celebrity part of it, <laughs> you actually get to real people stories, right? And oftentimes it is somebody who's triumphed over something horrific, maybe a person who's lost their limbs in some awful accident. And now they're using that, you know, as a, as a way to empower people. They give talks now or they've started a foundation. Look at uh, Michael J. Fox is in the news mm -hmm. a lot right now, right? Because his documentaries come out. Look at him. He took, he's actually a really great example. He initially, when he got his Parkinson's diagnosis, went into victim mode, yeah? Mm -hmm. He fell apart, he started drinking very heavily. I mean, all these things, you know, mm -hmm. started happening. And he, cause he didn't, he didn't get to that perspective. His point of view at that point is, I'm a victim of these horrible things that are happening to me and I have no control over them. And then over time, as he quit drinking and he had the support, he did have a lot of support, from his wife and family, he started looking at, okay, how can I use what, I would I would think he might've asked himself some questions like, well, what's right about this? How can mm -hmm. I turn this horrible thing into a positive thing that helps other people? And so he starts this foundation and he's raised over $2 billion for Parkinson's research. And now everybody knows what this disease is and people, um, there's there's hope, you know, they have, they have research now they recently discovered some really important scientific thing that might help them find a cure and so one man's suffering that could have easily just gone down the black hole of despair 
much like where I was, you know, with my illness many, many years ago, he didn't give up and he changed his perspective and he was able to turn this awful thing into a, into something more positive. Yes, he's still suffering and struggling, but look how many people's lives he's been able to impact. And he has had a wonderful life. He says, you know, um, he, he's even with his Parkinson's, he's been able, he was able to act for a long time. He had a wonderful family life. He's lived a very full, rich life. And if we, we could look at it and feel sorry for him and all that poor guy, we could be like, wow, what an amazing thing that he was able to change the way he sees his life circumstances and come out of victimhood and be like a Phoenix mm -hmm. bird rising from the ashes. You know, he's a great person to look up to, and I really do admire him and his work actually. Now, you know, this platform was built over a comment, and I shared that with you, that someone made just about the title, he's just a social worker. And a lot of times we're prompted for different reasons into action. Sometimes it's something really drastic. Sometimes it's something minimal, but it's that fire that we all have. You know, your work in energy psychology, tell us more about that. Yeah, so people don't know a lot about energy psychology. Um, it's been around for probably 40 or so years now. Um, in, in its earliest stages, you know, what it, what, what it is, is it's a more holistic perspective. You are looking at mind, body, emotions, and spirit with kind of energy being that common denominator. We're now calling it cognitive somatic practices, so mind, body, medicine. Um, a, there are many different modalities that fall under this umbrella, um, but a lot of the research and a lot of the modalities that have become the most popular are the tapping ones, mm -hmm. where you're essentially tapping on acupuncture points and you know, for a long time, this stuff was considered very out there and woo woo. And I think some people still see it that way, um, depending on what part of the country you might be in or how open people are to this. But there was also a time when yoga and acupuncture were considered weird and woo woo. Mm -hmm. but, but these modalities are typically based on 5000 years of traditional Chinese medicine or traditional Indian medicine in the case of working with chakras. Um, but we're working with the energy fields in the body. So the traditional Eastern approach, the idea, let's say with Chinese medicine, is that we have qi energy that flows through our body along these very specific meridians or pathways, much like blood flows through arteries and veins. And that when the energy gets imbalanced in some kind of way, um, like it can get, you have too much energy running down a meridian, not enough in another, um, you have the energies blocked in some kind of way, that's when this ease occurs. So when you go to the Chinese medicine doctor for depression or anxiety, they don't sit there and talk to you about the, your problems. They're looking at your pulse, your tongue, you, you know, how is the energy flowing in your body? How is your body functioning? And if there is an imbalance, they're going to maybe put needles in certain acupuncture points on your body, or maybe they're going to give you herbs or whatever treatment they're going to do to help restore that balance in the energy flow, because then the body is able to heal itself. Um, I love that, you know, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine functions from this point of view that our bodies have the capacity to heal themselves. And we just need to remove the energetic blockages and imbalances. So that was the original premise. And then how it kind of has modernized into the 21st century, there was a psychologist named Dr. Roger Callahan, who was working a lot with people who had anxiety disorders, phobias, some PTSD, and he was not really happy with the traditional methods, wasn't getting ahead with the traditional psycho psychological methods. And so he started studying acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And as the story goes, one day, one of his clients that he'd been working with for about a year with um, a severe phobia to, of water 
and not getting very far with exposure therapy and the traditional stuff. Um, one day she came in with a stomach ache and he said, oh, I know some acupuncture points we could stimulate to help your stomach ache. Mm. And he had her tap rather than use a needle, maybe he didn't have his needles, but he had her, he had her tap on certain points. And what he found was not only did her stomach ache go away, so did her lifelong phobia of water. Mm. So very intrigued with that. He started, you know, working with other psychologists and having them try these techniques. And he, started teaching workshops and classes in it. And this is how thought field therapy, which was the original version of tapping was born. And then from there, other practitioners developed their own uh, variations on it. Um, originally Callahan didn't have words, a guy named Gary Craig added words to the tapping. Mm -hmm. And so what it started getting incorporated into more and more therapist practices because it became a way to um, help release that energy, especially of trauma, or the energy of intense emotions, it gave people an ability to seemingly release that and reach a more state of calm and neutrality. Well, now what we know, fast forward you know, many years, science is finally catching up. Harvard Medical School did a 10-year study back in the 90s on acupuncture and essentially validated it. Found that in fact, um, you could find these energetic pathways, you could measure them with instruments. Mm -hmm. um, you could measure these energetic pathways that the energy is flowing upon. They realized that when we're putting an acupuncture, when we're stimulating that acupuncture point, it's sending an electrical signal through our fascia, which is that connective tissue that surrounds our muscles and bones and everything. You're sending a signal through the fascia up to the brain, to the amygdala which now, especially with polyvagal theory and really having a greater scientific understanding of the fight, flight, freeze response, mm -hmm. the amygdala is in charge of all of that. The amygdala is what determines when input comes in, when sensory input comes in, whether or not we are in danger. And if the amygdala decides, it's the emotional center of our brain as well. If the amygdala decides that we are in danger, it will activate that fight, flight, freeze response. And what happens in trauma in particular is when you're constantly getting bombarded with um, or you have been severely bombarded with, let's say, a, a true life or death, you know, traumatic experience. Sometimes what starts to happen is the amygdala misfires. It starts seeing lions, tigers and bears where there are none. Mm -hmm. And especially with people who have chronic recurring traumatic experiences or who have childhood abuse, adverse childhood experiences, what happens is their brain starts to change the way it develops and functions. And so does, you know, the genetic system, the genes, we know that trauma affects the way our genes function. And so what they've discovered with this work is that we can actually rewire brains. We can look at people's brains before and after tapping and see changes in the amygdala, in the nucleus accumbens, which is involved with addiction. There's a great study. There's a series of great studies by a woman in Australia named Dr. Peta Stapleton, and she has a TED talk you can watch, um, which talks about food addiction. And she, it was a very clever experiment. They had people with you know, obesity and food addiction issues. They, they put them in an MRI and showed them pictures of all of the foods, the comfort foods they would crave, and they looked at what happened in their brains. They then had them do two hours a week of tapping on those food cravings for four weeks put them back in the MRI, showed them those pictures, the parts of the brain that used to light up, the addictive centers of the brain and the amygdala that used to light up when they would see that, no longer did. Mm. And they would talk to the people, you know, that follow up like a year later, hey, you know, she says this in the TED Talk, Mary, how are you doing with that chocolate addiction? You eat six bars a day. Mm -hmm. She's like, 
chocolate. Oh, I don't even remember that. I mean, I remember I had that, but I haven't had one of those in, in a year or more. Right. So uh, we're creating lasting changes in the way the brain functions. And now with epigenetics, they've also discovered that just an hour of tapping changes the way 72 different genes in your body function. So if trauma and these early life experiences, you know, from which core false beliefs are born can be changed change with this technology that works with the energy in our body what does that open up as a possibility and so i will use tapping and other energy psychology methods it's actually what my second book is going to be on is eft for addiction because we're using it in the rehab and and our clients who are severely traumatized um we have it's women only and most of them have had really awful traumas their nervous system is constantly stuck in the fight flight freeze response with the tapping and other tools, other nervous system calming tools, we're able to help them to start rewiring their brains so they don't have to keep self-medicating with the drugs and alcohol. Um, that's pretty miraculous. You know, I was asked to write a paper for the Energy Psychology Journal about our work and we get, when you compare our outcomes data to other programs, we do better. We have better outcomes. Can we say it's because of the tapping? That's a hard thing to differentiate, but there's definitely evidence and data that suggests something, we're doing something in our program that's helping people to heal. And in my private practice, you know, I see people come for this issue or that issue. And with these tools, we can get there so much faster than research says it too. You compare um, uh, tapping to cognitive behavioral therapy and both get good results, but EFT gets it done in half the time. Mm -hmm. Think of what that implies for our managed care system or where funding or, you know, availability, availability for therapy is limited. If we can help people create a change in a shorter period of time, so, you know, in over the years, tapping has now become an evidence-based practice. People don't realize that it is. It was approved by NREP, which is the organization that was overseeing these things through SAMHSA, through the feds. Um, you have other governments in UK and other countries have also approved it. Um, the VA has approved uh, EFT as a treatment modality. So the science is really catching up. I just, part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm out there doing these podcasts and trying to get this information there is because our fellow professionals don't even sometimes know that these methods are available. And I think we're doing a disservice to our clients if we're relying on traditional talk therapy and methods that don't actually help a client, especially a traumatized client, when 70% of the blood flow goes out of their prefrontal cortex and you're using talk therapy modalities that focus on the prefrontal cortex, when that part is offline and a person's brain's been hijacked by this fight, flight, freeze response, it is a physiological thing. It is no longer at that point a psychological thing. And we need to use physiological body-mind techniques to address that. You know, COVID really shook our nation. It shaped the world. And tapping into this type of information is critical because I think that at this point, many people who may have dealt with certain things are now more prevalent. They're they're now being seen differently. They're thinking about things differently, and mental health is being approached, I guess, in a broader scope, which is which is a positive about this. You know, these holistic approaches that you that you talk about. Can you share because energy psychology is just beautiful, just listening to you and how you break that down. But talk to us a little bit about that holistic approach. You know and how does that term like kind of fit with your work now? Well, holistic to means to me means whole person, right? Whole person means 
not just your mind, as if that was separate somehow. <laughs> I mean, the whole idea of like a mental disorder, what does that even mean? It's not just mental, right? Even, even the commercials you see on TV for the antidepressants, depression is physical. You feel it in your body, right? It is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. That's the one that often gets overlooked. All of those pieces have to be addressed for somebody to heal. And unfortunately, you know, our medical system, our Western medical system is super fragmented. You know, even in even in the realm of body health, you know, you go to this kind of specialist for one issue, you go to this kind of specialist for another issue. Um, nobody, you know, there's a growing field of integrative medicine, which I'm super grateful for, because I did finally find when I was sick, an integrative medicine doctor who helped me get better um, from the Lyme disease. But, you know, if you're not looking at the whole system, the way everything is functioning, and you're only myopically looking mm -hmm. at just people's thinking or just people's emotions or just this thing going on with their body, you're missing out on all the other pieces. And I think we do, that's why we get in, we do this incomplete. I think it's also a contributing factor, you know, let's say unresolved trauma is a huge factor and why the relapse rates are so high for people who go get sober. A lot of times it's that, again, that amygdala that's misfiring, it's uh, people's inability to cope with stress that's leading them to not be able to break out of these patterns of using addictive behaviors to try to change. I mean, like the addictions is just a symptom. It's the underlying stuff that people aren't going deep down enough into, like unresolved trauma, like core false beliefs. They're not getting into that stuff. And so they're kind of white knuckling it if they're lucky, lucky, or they're doing the thing that we see so often in the field, which is in and out of treatment programs. We have people that come, this is my 10th time in treatment. Well, what's gonna be different this time? What do we need to look at that you've not addressed before? And maybe it is that unresolved trauma, and maybe it is you've got some real dysfunctional beliefs you're carrying about yourself and whatever it may be, We've got to get, we've got to go deeper with folks if we really want to help them heal. That to me is whole person healing. You know, that's a great answer. And, and, it, and it has me thinking about other areas, you know, that's not prevalent to what we're talking about here. Even when kids are learning in, in, I had a prior show about reading and there was a classroom teacher just sharing that holistic approach. I'm trying to work with a kid to learn fluency, but if the phonemic awareness is not there, if the blending is not there, you know, it's not just one part, just like you're saying, you know, the mind, the body, you have to be able to tap into these things. Your book is full of, you know, strategies and resources. What is one strategy that you could point out for us that you think is very important for our listeners to think about? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, what can I give you that's easy? Well, I can give you two things. Um, one is just a simple, because otherwise I have to go into teaching a, a lot. It might take some time, but a simple nervous system calming tool is breath work, okay? We can very easily get ourselves out of that fight, flight, freeze response with specific breathing techniques. And the one that I'll share with you that I find super easy and helpful is a four square or box breath. Mm -hmm. That's where you breathe in for the count of four, hold your breath for the count of four, exhale for four, and then once again, hold your breath for four. Um, and it doesn't have to be four seconds. It can be whatever your count of four is for your lungs and whatever pace you want to go at. But I do find the longer 
we make that breath, especially the holding in between, the more effective it becomes. And so what that breathing is doing is you have sensors in your lungs that are connected to the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is connected to the amygdala, that fight, flight, free center of your brain. It's what activates that whole response. Mm -hmm. So doing this four square breaths, let's say five or 10 breaths, can dramatically start to calm your nervous system. So that's super great in this extremely stressful time that all of us are living in. The pandemic really exacerbated that. That's a really simple step that people can take because again, when you're stressed out and if you're getting more into that fight flight, you know, extreme response, you know, you are not going to be able to think straight. You're not going to be able to, you know, that's when we get in a frazzle and we, and we get all spun out. This will help you to calm down and get grounded. So I like that. That's an easy one. And then I love um, Byron Katie's work. If you have, have, if any of you are familiar with that, it's four simple questions. And I love the power of the question, you know, questions empower, questions energetically expand and allow new possibilities in, answers tend to contract and give us tunnel vision. So asking questions is a huge part of what I talk about in the book. And she has these really simple questions. She's kind of taking like CBT and giving it to you in layperson languages. And it's questions like, you know, when you're dealing, let's say, with something negative and you're going into that real negative, like stinking thinking kind of space, um, like, let's say, for example, something didn't work out for you and you're and you're saying I'm a failure. OK, like, let's say a relationship didn't work out. Oh, God, another failed relationship. I'm just a failure. I can't I can't make relationships work. These questions that she talks about in the work, you can find it at the work.com is how do you is it true? How do you know it's true? How do you, is it really, really true? Like, how do you know it's true? And how do you feel when you, when you think this way? And what's another way you could look at it? Like four super simple questions, right? Because most people are, again, not really conscious of how these beliefs are affecting us. So with that example of the failed relationships, is it true? Well, I don't know, maybe not. I did have that one time, you know, I had that one relationship that was pretty good. And that, that, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't fail at that, okay? Um, is it really true? How do you know it's true? Well, just because those other ones didn't work out doesn't mean I'm the problem. Maybe it was the other person, you know, like maybe they were not available. Maybe they had their own traumas and stuff that they were dealing with. Maybe I'm not to blame for the whole thing going south, right? Mm -hmm. um, how does it feel when I think that way? I feel pretty crappy about myself, right? It makes me pretty depressed, pretty hopeless. It makes me want to go have a drink. Um, so that's not helpful if I'm thinking, if it makes me feel bad, um, what's another way to look at it? Well, maybe like what I said, maybe it wasn't all me. Maybe I picked some people that weren't the right fit for me. Uh, maybe they were bringing something to the table that didn't help the relationship to work. And what if I could get some help? What if I could you know, work with some of these tools and change the way I'm thinking about myself? Maybe I'll attract a different kind of person or, um, you know, what if um, I can learn how to be healthier in relationships? I could do some therapy. I could take some workshops, right? And then when you start to shift your perspective, you can see how then it pulls you out of that negative, you know, spin cycle and can put you in a, a space where you're open to more possibilities. So that's a very simple strategy that people can start with to just start to question and look at what is it I'm thinking? How's it making me feel? What other way is there to look at it? I love that you added the question portion to the resource side of it because I think that it's important for us. Sometimes we just go to that 
first negative thought and not think about that process. So thank you for that. And with the breath work beautifully, you know, there's one thing uh, I just written a blog recently, the art of breathing. And I learned that through Dr. Breath, this is a, a person who wasn't a trained doctor who worked in another profession and learned if you hold your left nostril and breathe out your right, you're calm and then right. So beautiful how the, you know, breath work works. So thank you so much. I also wanted to ask you, I know that you recently founded your own you know, trauma uh, healing center. Tell us about that. So yes, Firebird Healing. We, mm. we talked a little bit about why I chose the name and the symbolism. And, you, and, and I opened it last year on the 4th of July. Mm. So that to me was also symbolic of you know, finding your freedom from trauma. So uh, because it was, you know, originally when I first got the inspiration to create it, it was pre-pandemic. I was actually going to launch it as an outpatient, intensive outpatient program. Um, for people like the ladies who come through our rehab, who once they get through the substance abuse part of it now have all this unresolved trauma that we can't get to in 30 days or 60 days of treatment, right? Um, I saw it as a step toward follow-up care. Well, pandemic happened, everything went online. Firebird went on hold for a while. Hmm. Uh, and then when last year, as things started to kind of open up again, I decided to launch it more online with some slowly starting to do some in-person stuff. So it became workshops. We started with a few workshops. Um, we offered therapy. I, I hired another therapist and we started doing therapy and I've now got groups and multi-part workshops and we're looking at a healing retreat in Bali next year. And hmm. uh, so it's kind of grown from there. It's also, I um, when I think of our web, our website and our social media, it's a lot about giving these tools and information um, people who sign up for the newsletter will get uh, five videos of me teaching some of these nervous system calming techniques, including different breathing strategies and tapping and uh, some other meditations that I recorded. So it's really also meant to be kind of a clearinghouse, if you will, for all information about trauma, what it does to us, what is trauma, how do we heal from it, and then all the rest of the work, including the podcast, just supports getting the message out there. Yeah, well, now I have a question. Can people actually heal from trauma? Because I know that our listeners um, are worried about mental health, and we talked about COVID now, like springboarding this. But to a degree, can you actually heal from trauma and mental health? And Yeah, all of it. You can heal from all of it. You know, I was told I couldn't heal from my Lyme disease, that I would have this disease for the rest of my life. And addicts are told the same thing, and a lot of people are told that. And yet... You know, look how many people have healed from cancer, have healed, have have somehow, you know, regained their eyesight when they were supposed to. All these even physical miraculous healings that have occurred, they've always been possible. But if we don't believe that it's possible, then we will. I mean, they've done tons of studies on this. If a doctor, if you get a life threatening illness and the doctor says you only have two months to live and the people believe it, the majority of those people will have passed within two, within that, that period of time. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you don't believe it to be true, if you say, screw you, doctor, I'm going to show you, I'm going to beat this thing, which is kind of the attitude I took, uh, I was able to do that. So our point of view creates our reality. If we believe we're victims of our circumstances and there's no way we're ever going to heal from our trauma, then it won't happen. If we go the opposite way and say, you know, which a lot of people do, just get over it. Why can't you just get over it? That doesn't work either because trauma does affect everything. 
our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our spirit, our, our brain, our epigenetics, our genetics, everything is affected by trauma. We, but what people haven't really known up until now is what are the methods we can use to heal it? So there are somatic practices, there's somatic experiencing, there's tons of different kinds of hands-on energy work, Reiki, access consciousness has body processes and something called the bars, touching these different points on the head. Um, we have our traditional healing methods that come from India and China and, and um, shamanic work and all kinds, I mean, across cultures throughout history, there have been these like, and the psychedelics have made this an enormous comeback. Um, and there's huge promise there for healing from trauma. I mean, the MDMA study is irrefutable with the data that they have discovered about how um, these psychedelics can assist people in healing from trauma. So the data is out there. The science is catching up. What we've known as healers, you know, for, for years is that these methods work and absolutely people can heal from trauma or addiction or whatever it is that they are struggling with, a physical health problem, um, a, a mental disorder. All of those things can be healed. People can go into remission. People can be symptom free. Can they come back? Sure, in some cases it can, and in many cases it doesn't. Thank you so much, because again, um, we're just in awe here, just hearing your positivity, you know, you're bringing us back, you're, you're just keeping us strong and resilient. Where do you think mental health is going? I know you shared some of those practices that are trending. Are there any more? Is there secrets that are coming out in mental health that we should know about? Well, I do think that, um, again, coming back to kind of science and the more biological approach, I do think there are some interesting things happening with the psychedelic movement, um, with some of the other uh, more sort of body-based treatments, but that are coming from Western medicine. Like we just learned about recently um, something called a stellate ganglion block, which is where you inject an anesthetic, like what they give ladies, you know, like at the epidural during pregnant uh, childbirth, mm -hmm. they inject this in the neck and it does something to, to, out, to deal with the vagus nerve and that fight, flight, freeze response and people who are traumatized and stuck in that amped up state. Um, it helps to reset that response so that people's nervous systems get calmed. Um, TMS, transmagnetic stimulation, right? They're using that, um, again, ele energy, electromagnetic frequencies, right? To help people's brains um, get more balanced as far as how the brain is working and to deal with things like treatment resistant uh, depression. Mm -hmm. Treatment resistant depression is responding well to TMS. Um, what else? I mean, there's tons of stuff like that that's going on that I find really interesting as well as um, bringing the interest that in, in traditional healing methods, the ayahuasca, the psychedelics, that's, you know, that's also very interesting and showing really good research on resetting the brain. The ketamine assisted therapies that are out there are doing a lot in all different kinds of areas. So I'm, I'm excited. I, I, my hope for mental health is that we're moving towards more receptivity and going beyond the traditional talk therapy and a pill. Um, those things can help, but they're not the, they're oftentimes not enough. And many people will tell you that it's not enough. And so I love that we're getting this sur like surgeons and now we have technology like brain scans and EEG. We can measure things and we can measure someone's adrenaline and cortisol levels and we can see that if these modalities work and we can put them to scientific testing and find that they do. And I think that lends a lot of credence. Now, when I present 
energy psychology to groups and clients because I give the scientific data and there's over like 300 published research studies now just in the energy psychology world that documents you know that this stuff works that it is valid well-designed research studies um, that encourages me and that helps me feel that we're moving in the right direction um, even medicine they're starting to teach some of these what we used to call complementary and alternative methods cam you know, they're starting to teach more of these modalities in medical school um, so you have a new generation of doctors coming up who are more receptive to an integrated approach more functional type medicine functional medicine is growing as well looking at how all, how all the systems work together. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm hopeful and encouraged. Well, we miss you here on the east side and we would like to know when you're coming back around. And for the most part, um, we always like to leave our listeners with something. It's been a thrill having you here today. Can you tell our audiences something? Can you leave them with something when they're thinking about you and the beautiful work that you've laid out for so many years? What do you want them to remember? Oh, I guess it's just, it's really the message of the book, right? Like leave, leave folks with that question. What if all the ways you've been seeing yourself and your life and things through this more negative lens, what if that's a lie? What if it's not true? What if you are in fact an infinite being and you have an infinite array of possibilities available to you? And what if you're not as effed up as you think you are? <laughs> Love it. Dr. Adriana Popescu, we are so fortunate to have you here today, and we are thrilled. Thank you for such a beautiful show. You also opened the door for us and our listeners to think about these core beliefs, these things that may be holding us back because we thought that that was the right way to think about things because that's the way we always thought. But you have given us ways to now measure ourselves and think about other healing practices because you've modeled it by it also helping you. We're super lucky to have you as a guest and look forward to our work together. We want to remind everyone that there are so many great works that are happening out here. And today is just the tip of the iceberg. Mental health is bright. We're moving in the right direction. And these practices are now incorporating more people to think about real work that one size does not fit all. It could be different for everybody that we come across. And think about this, because this work was created, our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We will no longer be boxed in. We will continue to fight, whether it's illness, mental health, trauma, there are ways that we continue to fight. And like our guest mentioned today, she is amazing because she practiced it, she tried it, and she didn't give up. And that's what we want all of you never to give up because we all can. And the He's Just a Social Worker show will be coming close to another town near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa, this is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá. Te extraño mucho.